Friends, our first scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus. It follows a time when Joseph had been sold into slavery by his brothers, but he had risen to great power, becoming Pharaoh's right-hand man in Egypt. And then when his brothers had come into Egypt because of a famine, he was able to forgive them and bless them and make sure that they were well-fed and taken care of. But this is a few generations later, and the story picks up and tells what has become of the Hebrew people who were living in Egypt at that time. Our scripture reading begins in the first chapter of Exodus and the eighth chapter and goes all into the second chapter of Exodus. Let us listen together for the word of God. I am reading this morning and sharing a few notes from a translation that I love of the Hebrew Bible by Robert Alter. And a new king arose over Egypt who knew not Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the people of the sons of Israel is more numerous and vaster than we. Come, let us be shrewd with them, lest they multiply. And then should war occur, they will actually join our enemies and fight against us and go up from the land. And they set over them forced labor foremen to, so as to abuse them with their burdens. And they built store cities for Pharaoh, Pithom, and Ramses. And as they abused them, so did they multiply, and so did they spread. And they came to loathe the Israelites. Now, one of the helpful notes here is that as the people multiply and spread, and the Egyptian people begin to loathe the Hebrew people, this is a pattern of dehumanization, of beginning to think of somebody who is other than you as subhuman. This loathing and this imagining these people multiplying and spreading is supposed to make us feel uncomfortable, make us squirm, as these cherished people of God are considered to be like animals. And, at, and they came to loathe the Israelites, and the Egyptians put the Israelites to work at crushing labor, and they made their lives bitter with hard work, with mortar and bricks and every work in the field, all their crushing work that they performed. And the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other was named Pua. And he said, when you deliver the Hebrew woman and look on the birth stool, if it is a boy, you shall put him to death. And if it is a girl, she may live. And the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had spoken to them, and they let the children live. Another helpful note points out that these are not Hebrew midwives because they were Hebrews themselves. Their names alert us to the fact that they were Egyptian. They were just sent to serve the Hebrew women when they were giving birth. But Pharaoh thought that he could get them in on his evil, wicked plan to murder these babies, but he could not, for they did not fear him. Did you notice who it is that it says that they feared? They feared the Lord. And fear of the Lord comes up again and again in scripture with fear not meaning that you're afraid of God, but you have awe. You have deep reverence and respect for God. So they feared the Lord rather than Pharaoh, and they let the children live. They had prevented the beginning 
of a genocide. And the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why did you do this thing and let the children live? They have been caught for defying this power. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, for not like the Egyptian women are the Hebrew women, for they are hardy. Before the midwife comes to them, they give birth. And this is so clever in this passage because they know that the king has dehumanized these people and now they use his misguided, his wicked thinking that they are subhuman and play into that. So, oh, those people, they're not like us. You can imagine Pharaoh nodding. Yes, I knew it. I knew they weren't like us. And this phrase, they were hardy, also has animal connotations to it, but here they subvert it and use it as a powerful thing. These women are so powerful that they can give birth without even a midwife assisting them. Now, I don't think that that was true. I do think that they still went to these women and they cared for them. And I imagine they became like sisters as they watched these women labor and as they helped bring these little babies into the world. They too saw how perfectly beautiful they were and they delighted in them and they protected them. And they so feared the Lord that they did not fear going back to Pharaoh using his own biases against him and lying right to his face. I think the story is profound in that way. And God made it go well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and became very vast. And in as much as the midwives feared God, he made households for them. And a man from the house of Levi went and took a Levite daughter, and the woman conceived and bore a son, and she saw that he was goodly, and she hid him three months. And when she could no longer hide him, she took a wicker ark for him and cocked it with resin and pitch and placed the child in it and placed it in the reeds by the banks of the Nile. And now again, I love this translation so much because I would have missed without it that this is supposed to evoke Noah's ark. She forms a tiny little ark of salvation for her baby and she floats him down the river hoping that he might be saved. So she places the child in it and placed it in the reeds by the banks and his sister, whom we will meet later, the prophetess Miriam, stationed herself at a distance to see what would be done to him. And Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the Nile. Her maidens were walking along the Nile, and she saw the ark amidst the reeds and sent her slave girl and took it. And she opened it and saw the child, and look, it was a lad weeping, and she pitied him. And she said, this is one of the children of the Hebrews. And his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and summon a nursing woman from the Hebrews that she may suckle the child for you? Again, delightful cunning. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. And the girl went and summoned the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, carry away this child and suckle him for me and I myself will pay your wages. And the woman took the child and suckled him and the child grew. And she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became a son to her. And she called his name Moses, for from the water I drew him out.
Shifra and Pua. Have you heard this story before? Are these some of your heroines? Or are they new to you? The Bible names some 3,000 people. Of those 3,000 people, only 170 are women. That Shifra and Pua have their names recorded and scripture and their heroic and courageous deeds recorded for us to ponder and delight in this morning is truly a marvel. And this story is so alive for us today. Does it resonate for you and does it remind you of some of the conversations and struggles we are hearing as a nation? And does it also remind you of the 1930s in Germany, this conversation, really abhorrent conversation about just how many other people there are in the nation and looking at birth rates. Now it is called replacement theory. This concern about tracking birth rates and projecting forward and looking at what the demographics of a certain place might be like and this is, of course, how the Nazis began to get power in Germany, was playing on this base fear that the king had, that there is an other group of people who is less human than you and may become more numerous than you, and that you should try to stop it. So we celebrate Shifra and Pua this morning, who subverted this order and who prevented a genocide. We have a second reading this morning that really enhances the first, and I would like to, for us to turn to it this morning. It is the words from the Apostle Paul to his siblings in Rome, the letter to the Romans in the 12th chapter. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, on the basis of God's mercy to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Of course, this was written so far before Shifra and Pua's brave actions. Sorry, so long after, but they did not need to be told it. They already embodied this, these words that would come so much later. For by the grace given to me, Paul continues, I say to everyone among you not to think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members of one another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering, the teacher in teaching, the encourager in encouragement, the giver in sincerity, the compassionate in cheerfulness. No, indeed, these words would have been better for the king to hear the beauty and the diversity and the oneness through it all. So I had first been thinking about the courage of these women, 
and I wanted to share with you this quotation from Nelson Mandela. I learned that courage was not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. Everyone who is truly courageous, whose story has been recorded in history, faced down a Goliath which terrorized him or her before summoning up the courage to face it down. So fear is not the opposite of courage. It is the state of being from which courage can spring. I also love that phrase, may you love God so much that you love nothing else too much, and may you fear God so much that you fear nothing else at all. These women, again, feared God, and this guided their actions. They, like the Apostle Paul wrote, discerned what was the will of God, and then they acted on that, not what was the will of the king, but the will of God. And no matter what they feared, they had the courage to stand up and do the right thing anyway. So I have been curious about something that I'm noticing in society. And I see it from two different friends from long ago in my life. One who I went to middle school and high school with, one from about 15 years back, who have been posting and exposing me to some theories that are making me bristle a little bit. And so I've been trying to learn more about what this kind of, I would call it new agey thinking is. Because to me, it, on the surface, it sounds a little bit like what the Apostle Paul is talking about. When he writes, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And what I started to pin down is that, and maybe you already know of this, I'd be interested in a show of hands. Have you heard about the power of positive thinking? Probably. Have you heard about manifesting? Have you heard about the law of attraction? So, a little bit of history, but before I do that, I am not going to tell you that this doesn't work, and I am not going to shame or denigrate the people who believe in the power of positive thinking, who practice manifestation, who say that it works. For many people, they will tell you that manifesting does work for them, and that is well and good. If you have family members or friends who practice this, I don't want you to leave here and go tell them that your pastor said that they were bad or wrong. I am also not about to shame or denigrate anybody's deepest desires of their soul. If there is something you are longing for, that is a powerful, powerful inspiration for you. And it is important to be able to name that. But I want to think with you this morning about this phenomenon of a rise in manifestation. And let's look at what this is. So in history, it sort of dates back loosely to the New Thought movement of the 19th century and developed as a Christian movement with books like The Power of Positive Thinking, A Practical Guide to Mastering the Problems of Everyday Living, a 1952 self-help book by an immensely popular Christian minister, Norman Vincent Peale, of Marble Collegiate Church in New York City, which gave rise to many other self-help spin-off movements. So it's been around for a very long time. It's also related to prosperity theology, an American upward mobility ethic. 
But more recently, there was first a resurgence coming from a woman named Esther Hicks who claims that she channels an eternal being named Abraham Hicks and she teaches people that they can manifest their desires. This became even more famous in 2006 with the self-help book The Secret and Oprah Winfrey introduced this to many, many people. But then it spiked again, this interest in manifestation during the pandemic and it has been spreading like wildfire over social media. And many people of my own generation talk in these ways. I'll give you some quotes in a moment, but many, many more people in Gen Z are beginning to pick up the law of attraction and beginning to talk about manifesting. The Urban Dictionary describes the law of attraction this way. The belief that positive thoughts are magnets for positive life experiences and negative thoughts are magnets for negative life experiences. If you have had a specific desire and focused joyfully on that desire, it will be fulfilled. There are now manifestation apps and this has become an absolutely staggering industry globally. The manifestation apps have taglines like manifest your dream life. And they will argue that if you think in the right ways, your dream life will come true. Here are some more quotations from Abraham Hicks. You might recognize things like, the universe is conspiring to give you everything you want. Have you heard things like that? There's a lot of universe talk. Another quotation, everything is unfolding perfectly. And as you relax and find ease in your attitude of trust, knowing that well-being is your birthright, amazing things will happen. Things the likes of which you have not seen before. And another one, if something you want is slow to come to you, it can only be for one reason. You are spending more time focused on its absence than you are about its presence. So friends, things in the universe might be conspiring to bring you everything you want. I'm not going to tell you that they're not. And there are people, athletes for example, who talk about manifesting a victory by first visualizing success. So athletes actually made this tremendously popular. I remember when I was a, an athlete in middle school and high school, I did have a coach who would tell us to visualize our win before a competition. And some people do say that it works. Interestingly enough, on the car ride here, I have my niece Melody with me and we were approaching a red light and she said, turn green. And lo and behold, at that second it did. And joking about manifestation the rest of the way here, I realized I had forgotten my sunglasses. It was blindingly bright on the beach and I said to her, do you think I could manifest a pair of sunglasses before we got out of the car? But once we got out of the car and I walked up, to lead worship, someone from our congregation handed me a pair of sunglasses without me even needing to ask him. There are times in our lives when it might feel true. My point is not that it isn't true. My point is that this is not the Christian way of being. If we go back to what Paul wrote and if we go back to the lessons of Shifra and Pua, the question for us to ask is not, 
what do I want? And the posture that we take is not one of sitting in meditation in our rooms saying, universe, here is my wish list. I want these things, and I will sit here and visualize them until they appear. The Christian question is not, what will the universe allow for me to have to make my life good? The Christian call is present yourself as a living sacrifice. Do you hear that first in this passage from Paul? Shifra and Pua end their story being richly blessed. Someone might be able to point to them and say, look at the wonderful thing that happened to them. They end up with households. But what they did was they were willing to ask the question, not what does the universe want to give me, but what does God want the universe to look like? The thing that I identified that makes me bristle in the way people talk when they talk about the universe and manifestation is they equate the universe with God. The creator is not the created. God made heaven and earth and each and every person, and God loves each and every one of us. And for us to sit and turn inward and think, what is it that I want, and forget that what we are supposed to ask is, what is it that God wants for all of us, and then to live in those ways, even if we have to be courageous, even if we have to face down our fears, even if we have to fly in the face of all of that's going on around us, if we are brave enough to identify what God's desire is, shalom for all of creation, that's what we need to step into. And the other thing that is so profoundly not in the way of Christ is the utter lack of compassion that you will start to hear if people focus so much on themselves and what they want and go so far into this way of thinking that you have the power to make things happen for you according to what you have wished for. Because what about all of the people who are hungry? What about those people who are oppressed? What about those people who are excluded? Well, they must not have manifested properly, and they should, right? And you end up having no compassion for someone who is sick. Well, they should manifest their healing. No compassion for someone who is suffering. They focus too much on the wrong things. And what happens is that we can no longer be like these powerful, courageous women from the story who hear the baby weeping in the reeds and lift him out of the basket. Behold, there's another person. What might God's desire be for that one? And what might you be called to do about it? And it might involve danger. It might feel like you are presenting yourself as a living sacrifice, stepping into this dangerous place and saying, whatever happens to me, so be it. But you will find out, you will discern what is the will of God and what is pleasing and acceptable and just and right. Did you know that angels throughout scripture are just simply someone whom God has sent? And if we are to imagine people in deep need, if we go back to what is the deepest desire, that deep longing of someone's soul, there are people all around the world with deep unmet basic human needs and living in profoundly unjust situations 
And the way God works in the universe is not to manipulate all of us like puppets on strings, but to send us, to send us to be like Shifra and Pua, to trust us, to love God so much that we fear nothing at all, and to be the answer to the deepest prayers of others. Christian way is if you see your neighbor is hungry, you feed them. If they are thirsty, you give them something to drink. If they are suffering, you come alongside them, you have compassion, you suffer with them. You always revel in the universe, delight in the universe, but remember you are part of God's good creation just like everyone else. May we follow in the way of Christ. May we be courageous. May, be will may we be willing to risk whatever it takes to be co-creators with God for a universe that God dreams of. <laughs>